the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering, James Lynn producing and engineering a portion of today's program as well. Well, today we're going to hear from Jim Phillips. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. The president is making his first foreign trip uh, this weekend and following, we're going to talk about that, particularly the Middle Eastern leg of that trip. Also, we'll talk with Chris Horner, Senior Legal Fellow with the Energy and Environment Legal Institute and Senior Fellow. Actually, I'm going to talk with Myron Ebel. He's the Executive Director of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. We're going to talk about the Paris uh, Climate Initiative and whether or not uh, President Trump should sign on or, or stay a party to it. So uh, looking forward to uh, that, that conversation. Well, as has been the case for the last uh, couple of days, right about this time, there is breaking news story. And we learned today the Justice Department announced that it has appointed former FBI Director Robert Mueller Uh, as a special counsel to oversee a federal investigation into the probe of an alleged Russian influence in the 2016 presidential election. The appointment came amid a a, a growing Democratic uh, outcry for someone to outside the Justice Department to handle the politically charged investigation. And that has been uh, determined uh, to be the case now. In my capacity as acting attorney general, said the deputy attorney general Rod Rosenstein in a statement, I determined that it is in the public interest for me to exercise my authority and appoint a special counsel to assume responsibility for this matter. My decision is not a finding that crimes have been committed or that any prosecution is warranted. The Justice Department said uh, Mueller has uh, resigned from his job as a private uh, at a private law firm uh, to take the job of special counsel. Now, the decision by the Department of Justice followed the revelation on Tuesday that fired FBI Director James Comey wrote in a memo that President Trump had asked him to end an investigation into the former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Uh, more on that later in uh, today's program. Representative Jason Chaffetz, uh, chairman of the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, called the appointment a great selection. Senator Jeff Merkley of uh, Oregon praised the decision by the DOJ, calling it a victory for all Americans. What he really meant was for the Democrats. This is a victory for all Americans who believe in the integrity of the rule of law. The investigation must be given the full resources and independence it needs to succeed. And that certainly is the case. Well, Mueller is the former FBI director who uh, did a two-year extension under President Obama beyond his 10-year fixed term uh, before retiring in 2013. He became the FBI director shortly before 9-11 and was uh, at the heart of turning the FBI into a counterterrorism and counterintelligence operation. Uh, He, along with then-Deputy James Comey, threatened to quit over the Bush administration surveillance. Mueller's uh, note uh, were used at the time to back up Comey's version of events when they were questioned by the Bush White House. So a special prosecutor or a special uh, yeah, prosecutor has now been assigned to look into uh, those allegations, that news breaking about uh, two hours uh, ago. Well, I wanted to provide some um, uh, perspective, uh, perhaps, uh, and context for events that have unfolded. And I'm hoping we have enough time to do that. But I wanted to begin with the intelligence lapses and what many are are pointing out, and I I would agree, uh, are double standards and helping us to to better understand uh, the allegations that have just emerged. Andrew McCarthy, writing for National Review, points out that for Democrats, there is nothing like having the media and the intelligence bureaucracy on the team, and they certainly do and have for some time. We don't know all the details, but let's stipulate that if President Trump disclosed to Russian diplomats secret information that was shared with the U.S. by a foreign intelligence service, as the Washington Post alleges, that could have been a reckless thing to do. General H.R. McMaster, the president's national security vi- advisor, who was a favorite of the Democrats before uh, joining the team, claims the Post story is not true. But there's been pushback from critics who say that McMaster's denial was lawyerly. The matter boils down to whether Trump disclosed a, a city in Islamic State territory from which an allied intelligence service 
uh, perhaps uh, through a source who infiltrated ISIS or through a collection method that enabled intelligence to penetrate ISIS operations, discovered a threat to civil aviation, reportedly involving explosives hidden in laptop computers. In asserting that the report is false, McMaster insisted that Trump had not disclosed any intelligence sources or methods or military operations that were not already publicly known. Well, that denial arguably sidesteps what the Post actually reports. The paper claims not that Trump provided the identity of the sources or the nature of the intelligence method involved, but that the president mentioned a city that is the locus of the information. And by saying Trump did not disclose the source, is McMaster saying there's no way Uh, that what was revealed could compromise the source. Well, it is uh, reasonably argued that uh, this tip could enable... Uh, Russians to figure out which ISIS cell has been infiltrated, endangering the mole or other penetration method. It's also reasonably argued, though, that the Post's own reporting of what McMaster describes as a standard diplomatic exchange of sensitive intelligence has given the Islamic State valuable information it could not otherwise have learned. In any event, without going into details, Trump concedes that he did discuss facts pertaining to terrorism and airline flight safety, and the Post maintains that it was persuaded by officials not further identified, to withhold from its report the name of the city lest important intelligence capabilities be jeopardized. If uh, if knowledgeable government officials uh, did plead with the Post to refrain from reporting these details, that would be cause for concern for the president aired perhaps significantly. Now, Trump's disclosure was uh, certainly not illegal. The president is in charge of classified information. He was Uh, He has unreviewable authority to disclose it himself and to authorize executive branch subordinates to do the same. But legality um, is not the point. The question is competence. Was the president trying to impress the Russians with his range of intelligence knowledge, even though the Russians would naturally assume an American president knew such things? Now, if so, the incident would raise questions about Trump's conduct of foreign policy. Avoidable gaffes can gravely imperil intelligence sources. Now, the doubts that they um, can create about our government's reliability and keeping secrets may induce allied intelligence services to withhold vital information from us. Uh, And avoidable gaffes can happen to an official who is not well versed in the give and take of high level diplomatic exchanges. That would not be an excuse. President of the United States is not an entry level position. All that said, how unusual is this sort of thing really? Well, in the uh, in the National Review column, uh, they point out that uh, it's a good question that Steve Hayward raises in Powerline, along with a Washington Post report reminding us that less than a year ago, the Obama administration was offering to share with Russian intelligence about ISIS operations in Syria, which sounds an awful lot like what Trump was doing. Now, when Osama bin Laden was killed, President Obama was not content to explain the fact to the American people. His administration gratuitously disclosed that the raid on the al-Qaeda emir's compound in Pakistan produced a trove of actionable intelligence. From a national security standpoint, this political grandstanding was foolish. Uh, It gave al-Qaeda operatives a heads up uh, to their cells and activities uh, had likely been exposed, providing them with the opportunity to disappear before our forces could roll uh, roll them up. And then there is the Obama administration's leak disclosing to The Washington Post General Michael Flynn's conversation with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislov or something like that, uh, that was uh, done with obvious um, malevolence to hurt Flynn and the, and the Trump administration. The beneficiary, however, was Russia. It received valuable information that its ambassador was under surveillance and that whatever countermeasures the Kremlin's intelligence services had been taking had failed. Now, this is apt to make Russian operatives more difficult to monitor in the future. Well, more to the point, does anyone believe that American presidents other than Trump do not make highly questionable disclosures in their negotiations with hostile regimes? Remember when Obama told Putin's uh, uh, factotum Medvedev to tell old Vlad that he'll uh, have much more flexibility, in quotes, to accommodate Russian concerns after the 2012 reelection, patently signaling that Putin should just be patient and not pay too much attention to campaign rhetoric about uh, dealing sternly with Moscow. And what of the to and fro over Obama's covert uh, uh, Iran nuclear deal? Is it necessary to remind Democrats that Obama entered secret side deals with the death Uh, to America regime that were withheld from Congress and the American people. That was not an instance of which 
which Trump was apparently doing, sharing some intel with a hostile government in the uh, naive hope of getting cooperation from that government against the common enemy. Obama was actually partnering with a hostile regime through arrangements that were against American interests and that promoted Iranian interests. Now, of course, the media and the intelligence bureaucracy happily gobbled up the Ben Rhodes fiction that the Iranian regime was moderating and that Obama's nuclear deal was the only alternative to war. So it was anything goes. That wasn't plain loads of intel that Obama had uh, covertly uh, sent to the world's leading state sponsor of terror. It was plain loads of cash. But to judge from the coverage, this was apparently okay because, after all, he was Obama, the smartest, most thoughtful, most sophisticated negotiator in the history of negotiators. And Trump is, well, Trump. Now, how about Secretary Extremely Careless herself, Hillary Clinton? If she had done the same thing Trump did, the media wouldn't be saying she was grossly negligent in handling top secret information. We'd be hearing instead that what she did was fine because it was communicated in a high level a diplomatic exchange and that it's not like she handed the Russians a document that was marked classified or more likely we would be hearing nothing at all about her conversation with the Russians because current and former intelligence officials would not be leaking to the Washington Post. Well, you should read the FBI reports of interviews with Mrs. Clinton's former State Department staffers sometime in explaining their actions. I think you would find them instructive, if not amusing. Well, I'm not suggesting that Trump uh, be cut slack. This seems like it could be a serious error or one that was easily avoidable. But after a couple of years of hearing the Iran deal and Mrs. Clinton's uh, homebrew server explained away, it does make you wonder when the media suddenly got so interested again in harmful White House dealings with hostile powers and the proper safeguarding of classified information. Now, again, Andrew um, uh, McCarthy in National Review providing some uh, context and uh, perhaps some perspective and whether or not this is more common than we have been led to believe. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Uh, wanted to let you know later in the program, later this hour, we're going to talk with uh, Randy Newman, author of Questioning Evangelism, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did. I mentioned earlier in the uh, program that a special prosecutor has been named, Robert Mueller, uh, to oversee the Russian election probe as a special prosecutor. It's not clear um, how he is going to define his uh, mission, whether that will be uh, uh, narrowly defined, broadly defined, if there will be rabbit holes, which is what we've seen in a previous special prosecutor uh, situation. So this could spiral in a a variety of different ways, but nonetheless, the prosecutor has been uh, named and we will follow that story as it develops. Now, um, in the uh, controversy involving the former FBI director, senators uh, today have in fact uh, called on the former FBI director and uh, his replacement acting director, Andrew McCabe to return and testify about the investigation into alleged Russian meddling in the 2016 election. I assume that still stands, even though a special prosecutor has been named. Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Senator Richard Burr and ranking Democrat Senator Mark Warner have requested Mr. Uh, Comey testify in uh, both an open and closed setting because there will most likely be classified information discussed. On Tuesday, a New York Times report, as you know by now, alleged that uh, the president asked Mr. Comey in February to shut down an investigation of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. The White House has also noted that Mr. McCabe, uh, in testimony before Congress last week, told lawmakers that the White House had not interfered with the investigation. Uh, There has been no effort to impede our investigation to date, Mr. McCabe said, and that significant uh, in that if there was obstruction as opposed to a suggestion, and that will be a nuance uh, important to the ongoing investigation. Well, in their invitation to Mr. McCabe, Mr. Burr and Mr. Warner have requested that he provide all of Mr. Comey's notes and memos. Presumably that would include the memo that suggested the president uh, asked him not to continue the investigation against Um, his former cabinet member regarding any communication he may have had with the White House and the Department of Justice officials related to the Russia uh, probe. So stay tuned. This saga, at least this uh, this branch of it will uh, continue now. um, Again, in in looking at whether or not obstruction is uh, a case involving the president, it, it helps to try to put this into a bit of obstruction. And I think 
Uh, one thing I want to continue to repeat is the truth is there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot of speculation about what was done, what was said, what we uh, know and don't know. But there's a lot that we don't know with a special prosecutor. Maybe that will resolve. And I think that's what all of us are hoping for, to resolve the issues, not with speculation or innuendo, but with facts that can tell us one way or the other if the president is uh, responsible for obstruction or, or if he uh, violated principles in um, uh, exposing intelligence and so on. So hopefully we're moving in the right direction. But on April the 10th, 2016, President Obama publicly stated that Hillary Clinton had shown carelessness in his using uh, in using rather a private email server to handle classified information. But he insisted that she had not intended to endanger national security, which is not an element of the relevant criminal statute. The president acknowledged that classified information had been transmitted via Secretary Clinton's server. But he suggested that in the greater scheme of things, it's important uh, its importance had been vastly overstated. Now, this is in 2016 under the previous administration. July 5th, 2016, FBI Director James Comey publicly stated that Clinton had been extremely careless in using a private email server to handle classified information, but he insisted that uh, she had not intended to endanger national security, which is not an element of the relevant criminal statute. So both made comments that are outside the statute that would have required prosecution. The director acknowledged that classified information had been had been transmitted rather via Secretary Clinton's server, but he suggested that in the greater scheme of things, it was just a small pre- a percentage of the emails involved. Case dismissed. That was then. This is now. Could there be more striking parallels? A cynic might say that Obama had clearly signaled to the FBI and the Justice Department that he did not want Mrs. Clinton to be charged with a crime and that with this not so subtle pressure in the air, the president's subordinates dropped the case. Exactly what Obama wanted, relying precisely on Obama's stated rationale. Yet the media yawned. No one was interested in that interpretation. Of course, they'd uh, not yawning. uh, They're not yawning now, I should say. Now it is Donald Trump in the White House, not Barack Obama, sending Comey signals. So now such signals are a major issue, not merely of obstruction of justice, but of high crimes and misdemeanors. Trump hysteria seems to be a permanent condition of combustible compound of media uh, Democrat derangement surrounding a president who keeps providing derangement material. Now, let's try to keep our feet on the ground, but with a commitment to get the evidence and go wherever it takes us, wherever it takes us. Uh, for now, we don't have much evidence. Essentially, we've got single statement minded uh, 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 mind rather by the New York Times from a memo that no one outside a tight circle inside the FBI has seen, including the Times itself. According to anonymous sources, the memo was written by then FBI Director Comey shortly after a private meeting with the president, only two of them in the room after Trump asked other officials to leave. This was the 14th of February, the day after National Security Advisor Michael Flynn resigned over inaccurate statements he made to senior White House officials. Now, other than telling us that Comey replied, I agree he is a good guy, referring to um, Mr. Flynn, uh, the Times provides no context of the conversation, which may or may not be important. It re- its uh, report gives no indication of whether the memo provides such context either. On its face, the statement doesn't amount to obstruction of justice. Trump could be said to be putting pressure on his subordinate, just as Obama was putting pressure on his subordinate, who happened to be Comey at the time, last April. But assuming the Times is right about the memo, Trump did not order Comey to drop the case. In fact, Trump's statement is consistent with encouraging Comey to use his own judgment with the understanding that Trump hoped Comey would come out favorably to uh, Flynn. But of course, also with the understanding that if Comey pushed to prosecute Flynn, the president who had the power to fire Comey uh, was going to be very unhappy. Just as President Obama would have been very unhappy and in a position to fire Comey if Mrs. Clinton had been indicted. It's not frivolous to infer that Trump's statement to Comey was a veiled order. If that is your interpretation, though, you cannot avoid the conclusion that Obama's public statements were also veiled orders not to indict Clinton. One uh, important difference, statements were made publicly, statements were made privately. Up until now, veiled orders have not been thought the equivalent of obstruction of justice. In light of what uh, uh, we've previously uh, heard, you have to note uh, that concerns about obstruction of justice in the context of the reported Trump-Comey conversations are legitimate. That is because the conversation does not directly relate to the so-called Russia investigation, which Comey has explained is a counterintelligence inquiry 
uh, regarding Kremlin interference in the 2016 election. Rather, Trump and Comey were speaking about a criminal investigation of Flynn ancillary to but separate from the Russia investigation. We're informed that a grand jury in Virginia is considering evidence of transactions involving Flynn, uh, Flynn rather, although it is not clear that this was the case on February 14th when Trump and Comey uh, spoke. Uh, again, trying to provide some context and perspective on the uh, on these two cases, these ongoing investigations uh, with regard to this part. At least we know that a special prosecutor has been assigned. Uh, we assume that it will be a narrow investigation, although special prosecutors are notorious for rabbit holes and broadening the investigation that includes all kinds of things unrelated to the initial uh, uh, investigation. So we'll just have to wait and see what uh, the former FBI director, Robert Mueller, does. Uh, And he has been named the special counsel for the FBI on the Russia probe. Okay, coming up, we're going to uh, hear from a a conversation we had. Oh, it was uh, Monday last in which we talked about uh, um, being an evangelical and what it means to uh, uh, to communicate with those who don't share our faith. The book is titled Questioning Evangelism, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did. Randy Newman up next. Later in the hour, we'll talk with Jim Phillips. I should say in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk about the president's first foreign trip coming up this weekend. Uh, Chris Horner, who's the senior legal fellow with the Energy and uh, I should say Myron Ebel, executive director of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. We'll talk about the Paris Climate Agreement and where the United States should go next. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump is going to depart for his first foreign trip this week. One of the legs of that trip will focus on the Middle East. And we're told in the Washington Post that when the president arrives in Riyadh this week, he's going to lay out his vision for a new regional security architecture, according to White House officials, as sort of an Arab NATO to guide the fight against terrorism, to push back against Iran as well as other initiatives. Joining us to talk about that and uh, other elements of this trip is Jim Phillips. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me, Georgine. First of all, how significant is this trip, this first trip for President Trump? I I think it's very significant. In fact, I'm I'm surprised by the uh, great... uh, ambitious goals of this trip, mm-hmm. because not only is is uh, the president going to Saudi Arabia on his first uh, trip outside the U.S., but he's going to go to uh, Israel, to the Vatican, to meet with the Pope, uh, to NATO headquarters in Brussels, and then later to Sicily for the Group of Seven uh, summit. Uh, but just the Middle Eastern portion of the trip is is very uh, ambitious when you're going to both Saudi Arabia and Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Now, is the president damaged as he makes his way um, out of the country for the next uh, short while, given the controversies that have arisen over the last couple of days and the announcement that was just made a few moments ago indicating that there will be a special counsel for the FBI-Russia-Trump uh, probe? Will that likely have an impact on his ability to effectively um, initiate that uh, that program? Well, I think uh, he'll still be able to initiate it, but uh, the leaders that he's going to be meeting with may not be as likely to accept uh, what he suggests because uh, perceptions of mm-hmm. uh, political strength at home, I think, inevitably uh, factor into foreign policy decisions. Now, as I mentioned, one of the things he's going to be doing in Saudi Arabia is to introduce something like an Arab NATO. Can you explain what that initiative is and uh, uh, the, the, at least the, the first members of this group who are at least suggesting that they are willing to consider this kind of an alliance? Well, I think this is one reason I think it's very ambitious, perhaps overly ambitious, because it took uh, many decades to put the, the NATO alliance on a sound footing. And uh, the relations between potential members of this uh, so-called Arab NATO aren't as good as uh, the relations between the European uh, allies. Uh, many Arab uh, regimes really distrust uh, other uh, Arab governments, and that makes it much more difficult to uh, put 
put into place a, a multilateral collective security alliance. In 2015, there was an effort on the part of Egypt to establish something of a pan-Arab fighting force. That collapsed because of squabbling among the countries who had different uh, priorities, which may give us some indication of what we might expect in this circumstance. What would be the goal of an Arab NATO as the White House is attempting to put together uh, these countries? Well, I think there would be two uh, primary goals, and that would be to uh, confront and roll back Iranian influence and also uh, defeat uh, ISIS and other Islamist extremist uh, movements that threaten these Arab governments, as well as the U.S., what interest would um, uh, would Saudi Arabia have in this alliance? And talk a little bit about the, the military um, emphasis uh, that the United States is building with, with Saudi Arabia in this initiative. Well, Saudi Arabia's uh, arch rival is Iran, and the two countries are at a dagger's point, not only because of nationalist uh, reasons, uh, but because of sectarian reasons. Uh, Iran sees itself as uh, the leader of the uh, Muslim world, as does Saudi Arabia, but each reflects a different uh, uh, Muslim sect, with Iran a Shiite and Saudi uh, a Sunni or Orthodox uh, Muslim. Uh, and so there's there's no love lost between between them. Saudi Arabia already is the leader of the Gulf Cooperation Council, which includes other Arab oil kingdoms in, of the Persian Gulf. Uh, and basically, what would happen would be that would be expanded to include other Arab countries such as uh, Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, and possibly a few more. Now, my understanding is um, the package that the president is pushing would include between 98 to 128 billion dollars in arms sales over the next 10 years that could reach up to 350 billion dollars. And that would go that uh, relationship would be with Saudi Arabia. How important is that and how does that reflect uh, the president's priorities of um, keep uh, America safe, um, America first and, and so on? Well, it's very important uh uh, for the Saudi government, uh, because they, they want to have the, the best weapons possible in confronting uh, Iran uh, and Iran's allies, uh, and those would be from the U.S. Uh, so it's, it is seen as a, a litmus test of advancing uh, U.S.-Saudi uh, security cooperation. Is there, because uh, I understand that we're talking about um, upgrading the, the Saudi army and navy, uh, establishing at some point in the future uh, more of an industrial complex that Saudi Arabia itself uh, would oversee a sort of a defense industrial capability. Um, is there any, I mean, are they strong enough allies that this would be in our best interest if they are uh, more fully armed, that their army and navy are developed? Or could this uh, backfire? I think it's it's possible that it could backfire. Some of the weapons that the U.S. sold Iran, which was also a close ally to the U.S. under the Shah before the 1979 revolution, some of those weapons fell into the, the hands of Ayatollah Khomeini's revolutionaries. Uh, but the U.S. can minimize the threat by pulling the plug on the maintenance uh, and the, their access to spare parts, and that could uh, mitigate uh, some of the risks. So in this uh, this first foreign travel for the president, is this the first leg? Is the Middle East the first leg, or does that fall in the middle? And and what should we look for? Yeah, I think the, the first stop will be Saudi Arabia, uh, and the president will have three summits, one with Saudi King Salman, another with uh, – the members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, and a third uh, with a broader set of Arab and Muslim leaders that are interested in cooperating against ISIS and against Iran. Uh, And that could lay the foundations of uh, uh, future defense, intelligence, and security cooperation. Uh, Then the president will be going to uh, Israel, where he'll go to meet with Prime Minister Netanyahu and go to the Wailing Wall uh, and give a speech uh, 
probably about uh, his vision of uh, future Israeli-Palestinian peace. And at that point, uh, the, then he'll meet with uh, Palestinian uh, Authority President Mahmoud Abbas uh, and probably further discuss uh, peace negotiations. Uh, then he'll be going to Rome to meet with uh, Pope Francis in the Vatican, and then onward to NATO headquarters in Brussels, and then the uh, the G7 summit in Sicily. Should we expect to hear anything about uh, Jerusalem being established as the location for the U.S. embassy and the capital well, of the, Israel? The administration has been holding its cards very close to its vest on this issue. Uh, as you may remember, uh, as a candidate, President Trump said this moving the embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv would be uh, one of his highest priorities on day one. Uh, but once he got in office, like many other presidents, uh, he appeared to be much less uh, eager to to do that, uh, in part because he also has ambitions of uh, breathing new life into Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, and he's been warned by King Abdallah of Jordan that moving the embassy could result in substantial political violence in Jordan and elsewhere that could derail his uh, peace plans. Well, it will be interesting to see what's said, what's not said, and uh, how this trip goes for the president. Thank you so much for joining us. I always appreciate your insight. Well, thank you, Georgie. Have a great evening. Jim Phillips is Senior Research Fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we're going to talk with Myron Ebel. He's the Executive Director of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. We're going to talk about the Paris Climate Agreement and whether or not we should stay in or pull out. What's at stake? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest and his, uh, the co-writer of a, a, a letter to the editor in The Wall Street Journal points out that President Trump may be a great negotiator, but there's no provision in the Paris Climate Agreement that allows for renegotiation. So keeping a seat at the table, as some would have the U.S. do, doesn't offer the U.S. a position of strength, but a lifetime of crippling regulations that will have no real impact on climate change. Well, the uh, letter to the editor was in response to a uh, an article written by Representative Kevin Kramer on the uh, Paris Agreement in which he suggested that this would give the United States an opportunity uh, to be a, a seat at the table to renegotiate or negotiate changes to the Paris Climate Agreement. My next guest and his co-author, Chris Horner, disagree. Well, joining us is Myron Ebel. Uh, he is the director of the Center for Energy and Environment joins us to talk about the Paris Climate Agreement. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, Georgine. Now, most of us don't know a whole lot about the, the Paris Climate Agreement. We know sort of general broad strokes of what it's intended to do, but perhaps don't understand the mechanics of it that essentially, as you point out in your letter to the editor, uh, tie the hands of the United States. And in the, the um, article in the Wall Street Journal from Representative Kevin Kramer, he tries to make the case that we can remake the Paris deal to promote U.S. energy. Why do you dispute that, uh, that notion? Well, uh, the Paris Climate Treaty was negotiated by the Obama administration in December of 2015. And under that agreement, the United States committed as its own nationally determined contribution, or NDC, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels. I know this is kind of complicated, but below 2005 levels by 2025. The policies that the Obama administration put in place through regulation and without Congress will only get us about halfway there. Now, President Trump is undoing a lot of those regulations, such as the so-called Clean Power Plan. And so we're going to be further and further away from that commitment that we made in 2015 in Paris. Now, what Representative Kramer and some other people who support the Paris Climate Treaty have been doing is saying, oh, the treaty allows us to take our our promise back and submit a less ambitious one. That is, we won't reduce emissions as much. There is no language in the treaty that suggests that that is possible. They've made this up because they want to keep President Trump in it. And why do they want to keep President Trump in it? Because they will be able to beat on him put political pressure on the administration at every one of these annual climate meetings. And moreover, every five years, 
the U.S. has to submit a new commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that is more ambitious than the previous one, every five years in perpetuity. Now, you uh, write that the window for restoring our constitutional treaty process is closing. Uh, Explain what you mean by that and why it's urgent that President Trump respond in the short term rather than uh, let this languish. Yes. Well, you know, uh, President Obama and his Secretary of State, John Kerry, knew uh, because of their experience with the Kyoto Protocol that the Senate would never ratify this treaty because it takes 67 votes or a two-thirds vote in the Senate to ratify a treaty. That's how serious it is. It can't be a simple majority. It has to be two-thirds. That is in the Constitution, Article 2, Section 2. It's a shared power between the Senate and the President to to commit the United States to an international or foreign treaty. Now, President Obama and Secretary Kerry said, ah, but this isn't a treaty. It's just an executive agreement. We've, we've, we've made it so it, 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 we don't have to send it to the Senate. President Obama can just send his signature and we're in. Well, every other country in the world has gone through its normal ratification procedures, except the United States, where the president just signed us up. So it's important that President Trump takes this agreement and send it to the Senate and say, I want your advice and consent as the Constitution requires. The Senate will vote it down. That's that's what President Trump wants. That's what I want. And that's what most of the American people should want. One of the things you point out is that uh, by doing so, that leaves no margin in collaborating with a future executive to circumvent this process. So it not only has an impact uh, at this time under this administration, but for future administrations, it communicates the message that we have a process here in the United States that's constitutional and, and a single individual, an executive, cannot move uh, outside of that stricture. Georgine, that's a key point. If President Trump just says we're getting out of it uh, and we're, I'm withdrawing, then exact, you're exactly right. The next president could say, well, I'm putting us back in. So it's important that the Senate dispose of this treaty once and for all by giving its advice and consent as the Constitution requires. So so that that is a key point. Now, one of the points that Mr. Kramer made in the earlier, this is Representative Kevin Kramer, made in his earlier piece in the Wall Street Journal, an op-ed on May the 8th, uh, remake the Paris deal to promote U.S. energy. Um, you point out that Mr. Kramer states that by staying in Paris, the U.S. will be able to defend American interest and the use of fossil fuels. And then your next line is uh, quite cleverly put. He clearly has never attended one of the annual U.N. global warming conferences. Explain that. Well, yeah, well, I, I've been to a number of them. And the whole purpose of these uh, conferences, which are attended by several thousand official delegates from every country in the world, every you know, a country sends its own diplomats to these negotiating sessions. And then there's uh, many, many thousands of more of environmental activists from NGOs. Now, my group, CEI, is one of the few free market groups that is an accredited NGO. So I've been to many of these. These are two-week-long festivals of hate against fossil fuel energy use. There is no way by staying in it that anybody who's ever been to one of these would know that that's just silly, what, what, what Representative Kramer and some other people have said. We cannot, we cannot defend the use of energy, uh, abundant and affordable energy from coal, oil, and natural gas by remaining in this. The whole purpose of the event every, every year is, is a big rally against fossil fuels. The whole purpose of the, of the underlying treaty and the Paris Treaty is to eliminate fossil fuels entirely from, and the world today gets 80% of its energy from fossil fuels. Yeah. You um, conclude the article by agreeing with uh, Representative Kramer uh, in that neither America nor the world can afford a European energy crisis with skyrocketing uh, prices. And that's why Mr. Trump has to keep his campaign promise, which was uh, stated during the uh, the election campaign. Yes, absolutely. President Trump, uh, the first big policy speech he gave was quite late in the campaign. It was May 26th of last year after, I think it was the day he had secured the, the necessary number of delegates to win the nomination. And he gave a big policy speech in Bismarck, North Dakota, and and he it was on energy policy. And he laid out a number of campaign promises. The One of the key ones was to get us out of the Paris Climate Treaty. And the funny thing is, Representative Kevin Kramer was there. He introduced Mr. Trump at that big uh, policy speech on May 26th of last year. So the the whole... 
This is a key commitment of, of the president's energy strategy. If he goes back on this and listens to the swamp here in Washington, um, then, uh, you know, they're going to push him on other ones as well. And this one, this one links into all of his other energy promises. Yeah. So it's very key that he keeps it. What's the timeline on this? Well, it keeps shifting. Uh, the uh, There are two factions in the administration. I call them the promise breakers and the promise keepers, or we could call them the deplorables versus the swamp. Um, and so uh, at, at one time, the, the swamp was winning that they were going to, the recommendation to the president was going to be to withdraw. And then um, CEI and some other groups sent a joint letter from conservative and free market groups to the president saying, Please keep your promise. We support that. We support you in doing that. And uh, that seemed to turn the tide. And so uh, instead of deciding before the G7 meeting next week in Sicily, where the seven top country leaders gather, uh, Trump will be there, uh, they're going to now announce it after the G7 summit. So uh, the, the deadline keeps changing as the forces in the White House keep maneuvering. Hmm. So we need to keep their feet to the fire. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have uh, we have produced a uh, an internet video ad uh, uh, that uh, sort of shows the footage of President Trump in his speech uh, last May 26th and and calls on people to sign a petition to uh, to support that position. It's uh, you can find it at uh, Stop Paris Climate Treaty. Stop Paris Climate Paris Climate Treaty. I, I think if I think if you just type into your search engine Stop Paris Climate Treaty, it will go right to that video. Excellent. Thank you so much for talking with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Georgine. Again, Myron Ebel is the director of the Center for Energy and Environment on the Paris Climate Agreement and where the administration stands on the campaign promise made some months ago. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Brent Bozell and Tim Graham both wrote a piece in the Patriot Post pointing out that given the, uh, the season that we find ourselves in, where there are a lot of accusations made, where the sources are unknown, and where there's a lot of speculation about what, uh, what actually happened, what's meant, and so on, that democracy dies in anonymous sourcing. And we need to be very careful as we analyze what's happening and perhaps prayerful as we seek wisdom in trying to sort out uh, many of the things that are swirling around our nation today, and as we engage in conversation with people with whom we may disagree. They write that on May 14th, CNN host Fareed Zakaria offered a fiery secular Sunday sermon declaring that President Trump is a danger to American democracy and guilty of gross violations of the customs and practices of the modern American system, and that only the news media can keep alive the spirit of American democracy. If that's the case, then I'm leaving. On Monday, the Washington Post offered another arrogant serving of the media's idea of democracy and news. It loaded up a story full of anonymous current and former U.S. government officials with the headline, Trump reveals secret intelligence to Russians, highly classified information on ISIS. Trump's national security team denied the Post story, which, as usual, doesn't do a bit of good. The media instinctively disbelieve everything Team Trump has to say in the Post account. Uh, If it's correct, and the president compromised intelligence operatives and damaged alliances to impress the Russians, that is not uh, just noteworthy. It is uh, TNT. But what exactly did Trump disclose? The truth is, we don't know. Once again, we don't know what. We don't even know if. How many times must we attend the same movie? As we've seen so many times since Trump became president, these are anonymous leaks coming from nameless, faceless people whose motives might be pure but could be poisonous. We don't know. One thing we do know, if news is defined as quantifiable event, this isn't news. In the current hothouse environment with liberal media that define Trump as the, uh, the antonym of democracy, the public should be wary of, of um, anonymous sources. This is especially true today. Newspapers that crusaded against Trump in their pages, both news sections and editorial pages, simply cannot be trusted. Theirs is not the pursuit of truth. It's the hunt for Donald J. Trump's scalp. Whether or not that's a, that's an admirable uh, pursuit, we need to be wary of the motives behind these stories that we're reading. Earth to the Post, your new motto is democracy dies in darkness, but anonymous sourcing is darkness. 
every source who hides behind a wall as he tries to ruin others' career is a self-serving coward with a personal or political axe to grind. Without knowing an identity, the public has no way of telling anything. It's idiotic for the press to demand transparency in government at the exact same time it rewards government officials who refuse to be transparent themselves. Journalists pat themselves on the back that they would never be uh, stenographers to power, but they're worse than, uh, than that now. In the zeal to destroy the president, they've become stenographers to anonymous power. It's also a pattern. Since Trump won the election, the Post has been caught in a string of off, uh, rather over-aggressive anti-Trump stories that were based on anonymous sources and turned out to be untrue. You don't read much about what's true and untrue, but many of the major stories that dominated headlines were later proven to be, well, not so uh, major. Just last week, the Post reported that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein offered to resign in the wake of the firing of FBI Director James Comey. Rosenstein denied ever doing such a thing. The Post also reported that the FBI asked for additional resources for its probe of possible Trump campaign collusion with the Russian government. The acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe testified under oath that the report was not true. It's a shame Congress doesn't get to put the media's anonymous sources under oath. There's an obvious uh, reason why the public holds journalism and journalists in low esteem and rejects the notion that they are watchdogs of government. Journalists are not trying to serve the voters with objective information. They're constantly trying to push, prod, shame and trick voters into their own political agenda. Using whatever convenient information, misinformation or disinformation will serve their cause. And yes, they have a cause, it would seem. As one consumer put it, they don't like how the press facilitates government acting like the Wizard of Oz being all full of frightening bluster, but behind the curtain. The media have uh, something to hide. If we knew all the party affiliations, political contributions, secret agendas of their anonymous sources, it might be even more obvious that their reporting is much more advocacy than journalism. Now, the truth is, we don't know. In the cases of the stories that have broken in just the last a uh, little while, including the fact that the former FBI director, Robert Mueller, has now been named to a special counsel for FBI, the FBI Russia Trump probe. Um, uh, if we had uh, more detail, if we had better understanding of uh, the things that are being reported, perhaps we could think more clearly about what the conclusion should, should be. But the fact is, we don't know. We don't know how accurate the information is, for example, with the uh, with the alleged um, memo from uh, James Comey. Uh, no one has actually seen the memo. It may, in fact, be there. It may be accurately quoted. We don't know. Not even the reporter has seen it. So there are a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of speculation, and some conclusions are being drawn based on what we, you got it, don't know. So we need to be careful in drawing our conclusions, but we can uh, go to the one who knows it all, the story behind the story, the facts, the truth, who did what, who's speaking, who's staying silent, We can go to the throne of grace and ask God for wisdom. How should we proceed? How should we advise those who represent us in Washington? Uh, What should we think about what's happening when we converse with our neighbors? How should we speak in a way uh, that reflects wisdom and truth and doesn't contribute to the ongoing hysteria and hyperbole that so often characterize uh, characterizes the communication of our leaders, of uh, those who write and communicate the stories that uh, that we talk about around the water cooler. We need to pray for this republic. Um, it's easy to say it's we've never seen anything like this. That may or may not be true. We often use that kind of uh, description when we are unfamiliar with what's going on in our particular time. But there is unrest that, to my recollection, is uh, is very unusual. Um, there is vitriol, to my recollection, um, it, it has escalated since George W. Bush. Um, and these are, are challenging times. It also presents what I believe to be an opportunity for followers of Christ. Now, it's very easy to take sides. It's very easy to be frustrated and angry. I think there are reasons for both of those things. But to be uh, men and women who wait to find out what the evidence is, what we actually know, and recognize that there are reasons for both sides to mislead the public, to uh, generate an impression, a storyline that may or may not be true, but may reflect their preferences. So we need to be careful in how we um, we discuss these issues. We need to be careful uh, as we draw our own conclusions and seek to be somewhat redemptive or perhaps at, at least to um, not to promote this uh, uh, this anger and hatred that exists between those of differing points of view on the opposite ends of the 
political continuum. This is an opportunity for us uh, to demonstrate that all of our eggs are not in the political basket of Washington, D.C., or for that matter, Olympia or Salem, uh, that we are trusting in the one uh, who sits above but allows um, these leaders to hold their positions of authority. We need to be prayerful of those who, uh, with whom we agree, those with whom we disagree, that they would seek the truth, that the disclosures that are necessary to know what happened or what didn't happen, what authority has been violated or what authority um, has been uh, protected, so that we have a clear understanding and respond as rational men and women of faith. That will be a challenge for us because our natural bent is to take a side I know I have uh, views on what's happened. I have an opinion, um, but I want to be uh, careful and thoughtful, uh, particularly in my relationships with other people, and to demonstrate that my hope does not rest in the outcome of whatever controversies are swirling in Washington. My guess is, as was the case yesterday and again today at about 5.30 Eastern time, there's going to be some new disclosure. And my my bet is that that's by design, that things are withheld until 530 in Washington. That gives the White House less time to respond. It uh, gives uh, uh, media hours to build a story without a response. And this is going to be the cycle, I would imagine, for quite some time. We know that the Democrats, for example, are, are testing how the notion of impeachment might play out. We talked a little bit about that earlier in the program. So if you're interested in finding out what rules may have been violated and whether or not uh, what the president is being accused of is unprecedented. You might want to listen to the first two segments of today's program. But there's a lot, uh, a lot to, uh, to learn, a lot that's not yet known. And this is going to be the pattern, I'm guessing, for, uh, for the foreseeable future, where big news stories break, whether or not they're credible, whether or not sources are disclosed. And um, uh, we are in a unique position to be uh, men and women of faith, uh, who are unmoved by the ups and downs of these news stories in a way that breeds despair and anger and hatred and, and all of those things. Uh, anyway, we're just about at the end of this segment. When we come back, I want to tell you about a geologist who has filed a lawsuit claiming that uh, he has faced discrimination because he believes in what the scriptures teach about the origin of all things. He's filed suit. He's being represented uh, by uh, one of the uh, wonderful Christian organizations that oversees and superintends cases involving religious liberty. So we're going to get into that and also let you know what's coming up tomorrow on the program, especially interested in uh, making sure those who are in ministry are aware of Life Impact Ministries. And I'll tell you more about that in just a few moments at the uh, end of our next segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, a geologist is accusing the federal government in a lawsuit of barring his research in the Grand Canyon because of his biblical worldview, which religious liberty advocates cite as part of a growing trend of persecution, which may be a stronger word than needed here, but at least opposition against Christians who try to live their faith out in the public square. Well, Andrew Snelling holds a doctorate in geology from the University of Sydney, has conducted previous research at the site. His lawsuit claims that park officials have blocked his research efforts for more than three years because of his faith. Well, uh, Gary McCallum, who's a senior counsel of the Alliance Defending Freedom, which filed the lawsuit last week on behalf of Mr. Snelling, he says the government isn't allowed to discriminate against someone based on their viewpoint. And national park officials have absolutely no legal justification in stopping a scientist from conducting research simply because they don't agree with his view. Uh, using someone's view to screen them for a government benefit is unconstitutional. Well, the Alliance filed a lawsuit against the Interior Department, the National Park Service and Grand Canyon National Park, which have not issued statements about the lawsuit or the geologist's research yet. Kelly Shackelford, who's the president and CEO of First Liberty Institute, pointed to cases of football coaches barred from praying, Christian bakers forced to violate their beliefs for providing cakes for same-sex weddings. Attack on religious freedom, he says, in all cases are much greater than they used to be. We didn't used to have to fight as many battles, but unfortunately these days it seems like it's necessary in order to keep those freedoms, Mr. Shackelford said. President 
Trump promised during his campaign to make protecting religious freedom the first priority of his administration. To that end, he signed an executive order on the 4th of May instructing federal agencies not to discriminate on the basis of religious belief. So Mr. McCaleb said that the Grand Canyon case perfectly illustrates why the president had to order executive agencies to affirm religious freedom because park officials specifically targeted Mr. Snelling's religious faith as the reason to stop his research. Religious freedom proponents have criticized the order for promoting no specific relief for believers who find themselves under the thumb of the state. The senior counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, Gregory Baylor, said the executive order leaves Mr. Trump's campaign promise unfulfilled. We strongly encourage the president to see his campaign promise through to completion and to ensure that all Americans, no matter where they live and what their occupation is, enjoy the freedom to peacefully live and work consistent with their convictions without fear of government punishment. Even secular groups have said they won't uh, challenge the legality of the order in court. Today's executive order signed was an elaborate photo op with no discernible policy. That's the the, uh, quote from the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union. After careful review of the order's text, we have determined that the order does not meaningfully alter the ability of religious institutions or individuals to intervene in the political process. Well, Mr. Snelling in the, uh, is the director rather of research at the nonprofit Christian ministry Answers in Genesis and is a former editor of the Journal of Creation in Australia. His case began in November of 2013 when he requested a permit to collect up to 60 fist-sized rock samples from the Grand Canyon. According to the lawsuit, National Park Service officials requested more detailed descriptions of the locations that he would be sampling and then took the unusual step of asking for peer-reviewed evaluations of his research proposal. Mr. Snelling had completed three previous research projects at the Grand Canyon and served as a geological um, docent on more than 30 river trips through the National Park. He said he never before had been asked for peer review of his earlier permit applications. Well, he complied with the request for additional information and sent three peer-reviewed evaluations commending approval of the research permit. The park officials weren't satisfied. They solicited their own reviews of the project from three geologists, including uh, Peter Huntoon of the University of Wyoming, who recommended against granting the research permit. In his review of the project, he wrote that it is not a question of fairness to all points of view, but rather adherence to our to your narrowly defined institutional mandate predicated rather in part on the fact that ours is a secular society as per our constitution, end quote. He said the National Park Service must enact an internal screening process that should include an examination of the credentials of the submitters so that those who represent inappropriate interests could be screened out, inappropriate interests. In a subsequent email conversation with park officials, Mr. Huntoon recommended against processing the dead and creationist material. Well, park officials denied Mr. Snelling's permit request in 2014 under the rationale that equivalent examples of soft sediment folds can be found outside of Grand Canyon National Park, end quote. The lawsuit calls this reasoning a pretext for discrimination. The actual reason behind the rejection was because Dr. Snelling's Christian faith and scientific viewpoints informed by his Christian faith. Mr. Snelling's project sought to expand upon research on particular folds at the Grand Canyon when asked um, when he asked park officials about alternative locations where he might conduct his research. He received no answer, according to the lawsuit. Officials took steps to ensure that Mr. Snelling would not conduct his research off the grid. One noted that the geologists would be banned from research in the national park system if he collected samples without a permit. Another official said she would alert two individuals who were willing to look out for folks like this on the river. Folks like this. Mr. Snelling uh, submitted an amended research proposal two years later. At the end of last year, after delays processing his application continued, Mr. Snelling enlisted legal counsel to request the issuance of the permit. Representative Trent Franks, an Arizona Republican, sent a letter this year to the superintendent of the Grand Canyon National Park asking her to approve the application. Both letters went unanswered, according to the lawsuit. Mr. Shackelford with First Liberty Institute said threats to religious freedom should alarm everyone, regardless of faith. I have people from Eastern European countries who came up to me and thank me, Mr. Shackelford said. They say I'm not religious, but I saw this happen in my country. They took down religious symbols and in two months we lost our political freedoms. This is something that should be a concern for all people, Mr. Shackelford said, whatever their faith. We'll continue to follow the story, the lawsuit in the coming days.
Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Harold and Kimmy Oderly. They are the uh, Oasis hosts at Life Impact Ministries. It's an opportunity for um, those who serve in ministry to find a place of respite and care. And we'll talk with the uh, Oderlies tomorrow about that ministry. And then on Friday, we will lighten things up and do what we do on Fridays. Have a bit of fun. So I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blinn for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.